Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The global economic system connects countries and companies in a complex web of currencies, commodities, and consumer products. Even small events in one part of the world can cause big effects elsewhere. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a huge world-tilting event. While there's still so much that's uncertain, we'll take stock of the possible repercussions, especially coming at a time when the prices of goods were already spiraling upwards. Over the next hour, we'll discuss financial impacts with Bloomberg's head of economics, Stephanie Flanders. Then we'll analyze how Putin weaponized the global economy and whether a new political order will emerge from the crisis with historian Adam Tooze. It's a big day coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. After Russia invaded Ukraine... The U.S., EU nations, and Japan hit back with a slate of unprecedented sanctions. They'll boot some Russian banks from the international financial communication system known as SWIFT, take action against the Russian central bank, and gum up the works of all kinds of businesses. But there are a lot of important details in the sanctions that leave some wiggle room. Notable, for example, are the carve-outs for energy transactions, allowing Russian gas to continue flowing into Europe and money flowing back into Russia. While Ukrainian defenders battle Russian advances, the rest of the world's primarily fighting Russia with economic power. So here to talk about the state of the financial conflict and the effects it may have on the global economy, we're joined by Stephanie Flanders, senior executive editor at Bloomberg and head of Bloomberg Economics. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Great to be with you. So before we get into the whole set of measures that the U.S. and other nations have taken, can we just look at the fall of the ruble? Like we're now looking at more than 100 rubles to a dollar and the currency continues to to fall. What happens to a place when its currency is under that kind of pressure? Well, the immediate thing that happens, especially if you're a, a company, a country that trades a lot, is inflation goes through the roof. So you can think of all the prices of things that you import have suddenly gone up in ruble terms because you're paying a lot more for your dollars um, and uh you know, this is that's the sort of primary way in which an economy would be would be affected, along with what we know to be the sort of direct growth impact of some of the other measures that countries countries have taken. But the crucial, the kind of one two of this in terms of the sanctions is that not only has the market sort of reduced the price of the ruble and caused the potential for a financial crisis. If you're the central bank of Russia, what would you immediately do normally to defend your currency? Well, you'd go out there with your foreign reserve. And you you would sell um, your foreign reserves in order to prop up the value of the currency and to tell everyone in the markets, look, you know, we're going to stand behind the value of the ruble. Don't keep selling it. Well, as of last weekend, 
they can't do that anymore because in a very unusual step, uh, there are sanctions actually preventing the central bank from accessing their reserves. So mm-hmm. it's a really strange situation where you have a major economy uh, is basically being forced into a financial crisis actively by other major economies. Mm-hmm. And on paper, the Russians had huge foreign reserves, right? But of course, it's not really paper. It's digital, right? And those are <laughs> just, you know, uh, marks on a computer ledger somewhere, which essentially other countries have said, no, that money doesn't exist anymore for you to use. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because others will take note of this, right? They'll say, when is it? when do you want to have gold versus those kind of claims that, as you say, could actually be withdrawn uh, by sanctions. Um, there's been a bit of a hunt going on for, you know, where actually are um, the the Central Bank of Russia's reserves, because they've put them in lots of different places, including the gold. In theory, um, you might have expected them still to be able to go out and sell the gold. But of course, you know, who are they going to sell to? Everyone's terrified of selling to anybody in Russia at this point, because they'd be worried about the, the risk of, of legal issues and, and the implications of sanctions. Um, But you're quite right. The rest of it is just claims on other banks and other institutions around the world. And they've effectively been told, no, you can't deal with Russia. Those those reserves are untouchable. I mean, given what you've just said, why hasn't the ruble fallen even further? It's down something like 40 percent, say, uh, somewhat comparable to what happened in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea. So what's keeping the ruble still, you know, from total, total freefall? Well, I guess there's a couple of things there. I think the first thing would be that, you know, as you mentioned at the start, you know, there has been, there's this pretty significant carve out of the sanctions and a pretty significant flow of money back and forth that's still going to be happening for, for energy. Uh, and Russia is this very important um, energy exporter, that particularly the gas that it sends um, through Ukraine to Europe, but also the, the oil it, it produces, the 5 million barrels a day of, that it puts into the global oil market. So um, it people thinking about the ruble will think, well, you know, they've got that money coming in. They know they've got that kind of guaranteed resource there. Um, the other big factor, which may be even larger at this point, is that you've got capital controls. So, mm. in fact, there's a limit to how much uh, Russians can do to to get out of the ruble at this point. And certainly, there's um, you know they're not they're not able to get help from you know send money abroad at this point because both the central bank and the government have said you know we're no longer sending any foreign currency abroad. Yeah, can you explain a little bit more about how do capital controls work? For those of us who haven't really thought a lot about capital controls, like what what does that actually entail? So it means if you're, it, it depends on the, obviously there's lots of different rules um, and it tends to show that you're, you're, it tends to mean that you're in trouble as a country if you've, if you've imposed capital controls. But sometimes it will be the advice even of the likes of, you know, the International Monetary Fund will, who are supposed to kind of come and help people in crisis. They're not going to help Russia right now, but uh, they will often say, actually, the best thing you can do is just stop money flowing out of your economy right now, Mm. you know, if you haven't got other tools. Um, So that means if you're an exporter of anything other than oil, you might have trouble uh, getting, uh, you know, you can't, if you're, if you're, or if you're importing, um, you're not going to be able to take foreign currency out of the country. So Mm. say you might have a bill, you know, you might want to buy some foreign goods um, and use dollars to buy some imports. Well, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, and actually, the impact of that 
is potentially to help some domestic producers, right? Because suddenly people have to buy Russian because they're not going to be able to get the the imported goods uh, in the in the shop in the shops. Yeah. There is a question. I mean, we've had you asked this question because, of course, no one's ever quite sure exactly where these things extend and how much has been limited. Um, there's also been a limit on payments. It's it's a bit unclear, but we think most debt payments. So if you're a foreigner expecting to be paid, um, you know, if, if you if you've if someone, if you're expecting like an interest payment on a bond from a Russian citizen, you may well now not get paid because of those mm-hmm. controls. Although that's a bit uncertain, even for the experts, it's all it's pretty murky mm-hmm. at this point. You know, the other big question that I have on this financial, you know, currency exchange is that a lot of Russian wealth, you know, personal Russian wealth and sort of state-linked oligarchic Russian wealth has been stored you know, offshore. People were like, I have my money in some other currency in some other country. To what extent can the Russian state force that money back into their uh, economy or force those dollars or euro or sterling back into their economy? That is a good question. I think at this point, it would be quite hard for the Russian government to bring the money back because they um, because you have to have a, a willing Western bank or Western financial institution uh, that's going to do business with the Russian institution to have that transfer happen. And they may, as, a, as I said before, you know, even if it's regardless of whether there is a sanction against it, the fear of a sanction, the not wanting to hire loads of lawyers to tell you whether it's legal or not will probably make a lot of institutions mm-hmm. reluctant. But it's funny, you mentioned offshore. Of course, we know a lot of the oligarchs, the ones who have had specific sanctions against them, whose assets are supposedly frozen in places like the UK, have actually got big yachts (laughs) that our Bloomberg reporting has suggested they're all being sent to the Maldives at this point. So uh, that is a literally kind of floating wealth, sometimes which has been used as collateral for loans from banks and other things that is being sent, not back to Russia for sure, but certainly being trying to get that out of the hands of, of any kind of seizure or anything that the West might consider. You know, I was uh, speaking of Bloomberg reporting, I was watching an interview with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO uh, Jamie Dimon talking with one of your Bloomberg reporters in which he sort of floated the idea that there's actually some risk in cutting off Russian banks access to SWIFT, this crucial communication system in the in the banking world, because an alternative comm system could develop. And if that were to be able to survive, that might actually be a big problem for the West. You know, that's always an interesting one with these kind of sanctions is that you on the one hand, you're using your power. On the other hand, you're sort of bringing home to people how much power you have. So you have to be super careful about how much you use it. I think there is a question mark about in the future now, will others who might fear down the road getting on the wrong side of the US um, think, oh, I do need an alternative way of doing these things. I mean, funnily enough, the Chinese do have their own um, system of uh, their sort of payment system. It doesn't quite do all the things that SWIFT does, but it is a system that potentially now they could use in continuing to trade with Russia if they chose to do that. But it's not one that could be used to get around these sanctions outside of outside of China. But I do think you, re- he, Jamie Dimon raises a good point that, you know, on all these issues, People will question, wow, do we want to have our reserves in places where they can have sanctions slapped down on them so they're not really useful anymore? And Mm -hmm. even, in fact, some have questioned the role of the dollar going forward. Do you want to be so caught up with the dollar when the U.S. can turn off the taps like this? Right. 
We're talking about the global economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Stephanie Flanders, senior executive editor at Bloomberg and head of Bloomberg Economics. We're curious, what questions do you have about the economic fallout of the war in Ukraine and the actions that have been taken uh, by Americans as well as uh, other nations. You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, I was looking back at some of the timeline from 2014, Stephanie, and one of the things that was kind of clear to me is that some of these things take a while to roll out. Like it, they're, the, the announcements are immediate, but the actual shutoffs and, and repercussions are going to take how long to play out? Well, actually, what's unusual about these ones is that they have, they've come with such force and such speed that they may actually um, happen quicker than, than in the past. And I think mm. also there's going to be there's, the overwhelming kind of public opinion and the sort of unity of governments is such that anyone who might be, you know, a company or a financial institution who might think, oh, I'll just keep going until I right until I have to stop. You know, I think if anything, we're, we're calling it self-sanctioning. People are actually stopping doing things even before they're legally prevented from doing something mm-hmm. because they they realize they don't want to be on the wrong side of this one. And certainly they don't want to be kind of caught on the wrong side of this. Especially, I think it's hard to know what an endgame even looks like, but I'll talk about that later. And so people, I think, are also anticipating further escalation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question is whether that carve out that you mentioned at the start is really sustainable. So we're already seeing with oil, for example, that, uh, you know, I mentioned this sort of five million barrels a day uh, that Russia provides. It's already uh, fallen significantly because nobody Mm. wants to buy Russian oil. Mm. Uh, And that's despite that's with the carve out. Now, if you cut the gas supplies have actually increased, if anything, because the price of oil has gone up so much, but the price of gas is soaring. And if you're in Europe, you're dependent on Russia for a lot of your gas. So that's one of the questions is, is it is it sustainable to continue to exclude gas? Will Russia even say that it's going to cut off the gas? And what would be the economic implications of that? Because it's such an important source. We're talking about global economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the global economic repercussions of Russian invasion of Ukraine and the countermeasures the West and Japan and other countries have taken with Stephanie Flanders, senior executive editor at Bloomberg and head of Bloomberg Economics. 
Listener uh, comments coming in. One listener tweets, it's kind of disheartening that global economic impacts are even a part of whether or not we should sanction Russia because human rights are worth every penny of it. Some Americans don't realize this or maybe have become numb due to desire for cheap products like from China. If people are still on the fence about buying Russian products, they're either oblivious or unethical. David writes, BNP Paribas, the parent of Bank of the West, pled guilty to violating U.S. sanctions against Sudan. Cuba and Iran in 2016 and paid a fine of almost $9 billion. And another listener writes, what does Russia need from the rest of the world? What are its exports and more importantly, its imports? Would it starve its populace using police state powers like North Korea? And I do want to talk about a couple of those other uh, commodities. We've been talking about oil. The other big thing in this region of the world, commodity-wise, is wheat, right? And that could send repercussions throughout the, the sort of region and world. Stephanie? Sorry. Oh, sorry about <laughs> I that. Was I was listening to you and it was so interesting. And then I suddenly realized that maybe that was a question addressed to me. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yes. I, um, no, I, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've got fuel as the big one, but there's also uh, grain. There's some other raw materials and uh, some industrial metals that people are now sort of wondering, okay, we're going to need some alternative sources. I mean, as with all of this, I mean, you've already, we've had lots of discussion about the gas prices going up. And when I talk about European gas, I'm talking about, Gas, that kind Natural of gas, gas, but also right. gas at the pump uh, prices obviously already was going up before this and is now going up again. Um, you know, the big imp implication is is more inflation at a time when we've already got uh, above, uh, you know, higher inflation than we've had in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as we can see, it is going to be a price impact rather than suddenly finding that you actually can't get your hands on things. But remember, we were already having problems with our global supply chains, and this is certainly not going to help. Right. Let's bring in our first caller, uh, Hitesh from Pacifica. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great discussion and lots to unpack, obviously, when it comes to, you know, this, this financial and the economics of, of a war. My question is, with all of the sanctions that the entire globe is basically putting up against Russia right now, um, how does it articulate or, or could you articulate the impact of that? in the short-term, mid-term, and long-term basis for the Russian government versus businesses or partners or business, business relationships that are with, uh, you know, Russian entities from within the U.S. or from any other countries. Like, mm -hmm. how do we unpack or how do we comprehend that whatever is actually getting set up against Russia right now is really worthy or is really impactful for the government to, you know, recourse action versus the impact of that on, on the general public and the general businesses that are Russian and probably have nothing to do with all this. Right, right. Thank you for that question. Stephanie? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, obviously there is always an issue. I mean, there's been a line throughout this from the government saying, you know, we're not, this isn't about the Russian people and where we can, we want to, we want to, we don't want to punish the Russian people. Um, and that certainly applies when you're outside of Russia. Um, there's an effort, for example, not to put sort of not to be sanctioned the kind of day to day activities of, of Russian citizens who happen to be working abroad. Um, but inevitably, you know, the only way that you impose that you make sanctions hurt is by hurting the economy and the economic pain um, and pain for businesses is going to be felt 
by by ordinary people, you know, and we know it's an uncomfortable reality. They'll be felt more by them than by uh, Putin and his and his acolytes. So, you know, this is always a dilemma. I think it in Russia that they had they had got uh, they had sort of known that they needed some protection from these kind of you know Putin was already. Um, on the wrong side of a lot of issues recently. They'd had the experience of the Chechnya uh, sanctions. So banks have a bit more buffers and sort of protection from bank runs than you might have, they might have had a few years ago, but we're actually seeing them, you know, there are bank runs happening. People are queuing outside banks. Um, and businesses, it being Russia and Putin having the relationship he does, I think they also would have tried to hedge themselves uh, in their business dealings and sort of prepared for things. But Frankly, no one, I don't think they ever would have expected such severe sanctions um, and this level of being cut off from the global community. So, no, this is going to be pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, definitely reading back uh, to 2014's history and the response of, of Europe and the U.S. to the invasion of Crimea, you know, a lot of these same things were bandied about, but then ultimately not done. And so I think it did lead people to believe that maybe this level of unity and intensity of sanctions just were not were not possible. Let, let's bring in uh, Joe from San Jose. Hey, Hi, Joe, can, um, can you hear me? Yep, sure can. Okay, great, thanks. Um, I, I just was really uh, happy to see Apple stop product sales in Russia, and Boeing uh, this morning announced uh, no more technical support for Russia. And I'm wondering uh, if there's any inkling of other companies to follow. Um, and uh, whether yeah. this, whether you think, uh, I mean, I would think that this would impact uh, the Russian people at the local level. And I guess the other other question I have is um, getting information to the Russian people uh, is can you can you talk about that to, to counter all the lies that the uh, state propaganda uh, puts out? Joe, that's our uh, show tomorrow, actually, is on this sort of InfoWars. I probably won't toss that one to Stephanie um, just yet. But I did want to um, take Joe's question and expand it a tiny bit, which is there were these technology import restrictions that were also announced as part of the slate of sanctions that the U.S. and other countries uh, has, has placed on Russia. And one of the big ones is semiconductors, which, as we've seen here in the U.S., if you're missing semiconductors, all kinds of supply chains, even for things that don't seem like they have a ton of technology in them, uh, start to break down because really computing is, is kind of in everything. Um, when might we see, you know, we've seen Apple's moves, immediate moves, um, but when might we see those more supply chain technology restrictions start to have an effect? You know, it's interesting because if if you're if you're making it quite hard for people just to trade anything with Russia, <clears throat> excuse me, then uh, these kind of things are almost secondary because you've you've already made it very unlike. You know, people there's a lot of for, foreign institutions to go back to the basic point that are just going to be nervous of doing anything with Russia because they're just not going to they're going to be worried about breaking the rules. So I think that kind of level of sanctions almost belong to the sort of first and second wave when uh, the, when we weren't doing such kind of fundamental basic things like stopping the central bank from accessing its reserves um it's kind of come it's gone down the list a little bit but of course over the long term 
you know, if we had initially assumed that this would drag on for a while because you wouldn't be putting such enormous pressure on Russia, um, then that could be important. I would say just on the other point, quickly mm -hmm. on the sort of mm -hmm. corporate involvement, it's very striking. I mean, you're right to take us back to the Chechnya example because the difference, you know, my colleague, a colleague was reminding me that even as the Chechnya situation was unfolding and even as some sanctions were being announced, you had... Um, energy firms and other businesses go to the go to a big business summit in St. Petersburg um, and sign big deals with Russian companies. The BP signed, a, the, the British oil company signed a big deal, which it's now trying to get out of um, at that time. And there was, they, the companies felt that they really could just draw a line and say, okay, there's this stuff going on with politics and sanctions, but, you know, we still can do our business. Um, that is just not possible now. And that's the big contrast you see with Apple, Disney, all these people pulling out. Uh, Stephanie Flanders, last question before we uh, let you get back to the rest of your day. Appreciate all the time you've been able to share with us. Uh, Ganesh uh, asks, how can the sanctions regime prevent cryptocurrency transactions by Russian state entities and oligarchs? I think that goes to, I think it's harder. Uh, but I think once again, and that does go to, you know, why some people would say, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies are a way for people to be escaping these kind of formal controls. Um, but remember, you keep going back to things, you know, that the, the exchanges, the anything that's based in the US could still potentially um, be uh, punished by the US for violating sanctions because there's quite tough sort of backup rules that the US has for sanctions. They have secondary sanctions rules. Um, so I, I would say, you know, I don't have the fi final word on this by any means, but I think you, would, you still might find it's not quite as easy as you'd think. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about the global economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Stephanie Flander, senior executive editor at Bloomberg and head of Bloomberg Economics. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you. Yeah. We're now joined by Adam Chews, an economic historian and the author of two best-selling books on the global economy. And I know we've been talking about how everything is changing and we'll get there. But I was stunned to really go back to your book, Adam, and thank you for joining us. Um, but your book, Crashed, is about the you know, financial collapse of the aughts. And then I f you find this chapter on the, quote, Ukraine crisis. And it was fascinating to read back through it and see so many of the players and the possibilities of sanctions and all these things kind of already kind of formed in this sort of embryonic state back in 2014. And it feels like in a billiard ball kind of way, the moment we're in now is pretty directly related to the negotiations over trade and customs back then. Absolutely. And the, and the um, Ukrainians have been trying to tell us this. Uh, well, trying to tell us this for for weeks and weeks and weeks, all of last year, this was their principal concern that we should understand because they didn't anticipate there was going to be a Russian invasion. Their lesson to us was, look, we've been in this confrontation since 14. Whether you like it or not, the Russians regard us as your proxy, that is the West. And um, you need to get behind us was their message. And of course, since 2014, we've been consistently refusing to do that. Because we should remind ourselves that as of last week, I think the overwhelming preoccupation and preconception of both the Europeans and the Americans was that the Russians were going to steamroller Ukraine, that they would be in military occupation of the whole country within a matter of days. And then all of the sanctions that we're so preoccupied with right now would, as it were, strike Russia as punishment in the aftermath of that violation. Mm. But these tensions do go back. Yes, they go back even further. I mean, it's not, as it were, kind of whataboutism and digging up old 
dead bodies. But I think in terms of the logic of the crisis in the region, it goes back to the 90s and the 2000s, Ukraine's sluggish economic development, to, to be polite about it, in the post-Soviet period, set up the con conditions for the, the Orange Revolution of 2004, made Russia more and more nervous about Western expansion, culminating then in that couplet of you know Putin's famous Munich Security Conference speech in February 20, 2007, where he says, these are our red lines. And the Bush administration's decision 12 months later to breach those red lines with an offer from NATO that both Georgia and Ukraine would join NATO. And then literally weeks before the Lehman crisis in 2008, the first shooting war, the direct analogue to what we're witnessing right now, which is the clash between Georgia and, the, and Russia and the punitive Russian invasion. So the things are in, entirely melded. Yeah, finance and economics... We now know, I think, you know, it's very obvious, like totally interwoven with, with power. But, but it was one of neoliberalism's preconceptions that they could be neatly divided on the premise that, as it were, we had the military power and the economic game would play into our hands. And that basic set of assumptions about the world has been upended dramatically in the last few weeks, but, but really over a period of time going back to 2007-8. I mean, it really does feel like we've seen the world go through this astonishing geopolitical reorientation. I, I do want to stick with some of the hard factors, though, that have not changed, even if people are sort of talking differently. I feel like that's one of the things I've really learned from your from your books. And the obvious one is that Europe is still dependent on Russian gas for the foreseeable mm -hmm. future. But what are those other sort of hard constraints of sort of the the infrastructure of the world there? That is absolutely the preeminent one. The two things that really are very hard to shift are that Russia is deeply integrated with the West by way of the oil and the gas markets. The oil is the bigger one in commercial terms. It matters more for Russia. It's the market that will affect Americans as well and is why the Biden administration has been gentle on the energy sanction side. And the gas side is less significant commercially because the stuff's just cheaper, but it's hardwired. It's like pipelined into Europe mm -hmm. and the Europeans can't do without it. It dominates domestic energy supply, not just in Germany and Italy, which are big, but overwhelmingly in the former East European countries, which are basically, you know, for them, the Soviet gas supply was just part of their local plumbing. Now, in other markets, other, other markets that metal, matter are metal markets um, and grain and agriculture. And if, you know, if Ukraine and Russia are a real economic superpower, whale in a global market, it isn't really even so much in oil and gas where they're huge, but, uh, you know, they divide that world with Saudi and all the other OPEC mm -hmm. members. It's in grain and, and in even more in vegetable oils. So like sunflower oil, I think the Ukrainians supply 60%, the two between them supply 80% of global uh, vegetable, of, of sunflower seed in particular, which is widely used in Europe. But grain is huge. And that, of course, affects if you ask yourself who imports grain and who really needs to import grain, it's an alarming list of medium and low income countries with Egypt at the very top and the likes of Ethiopia, Lebanon, all in there on that list. So they are potentially very exposed to the kind of disruption that we're seeing right now. Well, and that's right. It's, it's harder for Americans with our sort of self-centeredness to see the way that these repercussions are not going to just hit Russia and, and, and the post-Soviet world, but all of these people who sort of buy within those sort of uh, networks of, of commerce. I, you know, earlier we were talking with Stephanie about the, the ruble. And for years, um, the ruble and the price of oil have basically traded up and down in, in lockstep. Yep. Now the ruble is collapsing and the price of oil is shooting up. W what do we make of what that discontinuity will mean? 
<laughs> well, that's a complicated and technical question. I mean, we don't know because the ruble's collapse is the result of this extraordinary escalations of sanctions at the weekend. The strike, Stephanie, I overheard her saying it, and she's absolutely right. That's a game changer. The, the strike against the central bank is just, it wasn't on the cards. It had not been previously discussed. It hadn't been previously discussed because it's so extraordinary. I mean, if that's on the cards, you need to sell everything that's denominated in rubles, full stop. Doesn't matter what it is. It's taking a discount. Get out now. Full stop. You know, don't just discuss anything. No, no one in financial markets was hesitate. So you cannot put that on the agenda because if they put it on the agenda before the invasion, it would already have been a hostile act against Russia. Right? So what we were trying to do was say, you attack and invade, you take Ukraine, then we'll punish you. If we had said we're going to attack your central bank, that would have produced an immediate run on Russia. And what we ended up doing was declaring an attack on their central bank whilst the battlefield events are completely undecided and Putin's fighting for his life. So we've now essentially entered this conflict as parties to the conflict. So we don't know. This is a... You know, and then he went nuclear on Sunday. So, like, this is a broken play. No one really knows what happens here. The ruble would be devaluing even more if the markets were actually open in Russia. I mean, right now it's it's moderate, but that's because no one can sell rubles, right? You're not allowed to sell them. So, not for foreign exchange. And what the Russian central bank is obviously going to do is to just harvest all the foreign exchange earnings of its private firms, which can still sell stuff, and that may run out after a while. So, we don't really know how this dislocation is going to work. In due course... And people were saying this in financial markets in January, right? Is the is Russian assets are oversold? Um, that was literally a headline in the in the in the Financial Times. It's like this is an opportunity to buy because of that divergence that you've just pointed to. Mm. If the Russian ruble is undervalued and the oil price is high, at some point when this market comes back together again, somebody's going to make a huge profit. Um, but you would have to be a very bold person. I think Gazprom went down ninety seven percent in London. <laughs> Um, today. So if you're buying Gazprom now, it's a bit like buying AIG in like, you know, the, the end of 2008. Don't come bleating to anyone if you lose your shirt. Right. But if you, if, you made a, if you made a little bit of a flutter on Gazprom, I mean, if, if that doesn't revalue and reset, that would imply like a permanent rupturing of the relationship between, you know, the number two fossil fuel producer in the world and the world economy, which is on the face of it quite an implausible scenario. But right now, no one wants to be holding it, right? There's no reputable financial manager, no asset manager that wants to be profiteering on that trade right now. Yeah. Seems like there might be some disreputable asset managers out there in this world, so maybe they'll be getting involved. We're talking about the global economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Adam Tews, professor of history at Columbia University and director of the European Institute. He's also author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, as well as Crashed, which I've recommended before and recommend even more highly, even to understand what's happening uh, in Ukraine. We'd love your questions. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And you can email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after this short break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. 
I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the global economic impacts of the war in Ukraine with Adam Tews, professor of history at Columbia University and author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, as well as Crashed on the Financial Crisis and its attendant many sub-crises in the years afterwards. One of our listeners has a question for you, Adam. John writes, one of the big questions to me is, will China join with Russia to form a separate economic military alliance? Splitting the world into two basic factions, or will China stand aside and let Russia struggle? Yeah, this is a key question, absolutely. I think that's on many people's minds, and it will be very, you know, it'll be dispositive, really, for the development of the global power system henceforth, how China lines up. The signs are, I think, is that the Chinese position is moving from one of sort of cautious and bewildered sort of inertial support for Russia in the early days of this. Um, apparently, Chinese diplomats just didn't believe the, the headlines at first and were checking with, you know, Western journalists they trusted as to whether or not this was actually a fake news campaign. Um, but now I think they've started to, they've just started describing it as an invasion rather than, you know, some euphemistic term about military operation. And they are calling for calm, insisting that China has an interest in peace, offering their services as mediators. So that's a, that's a really rather dramatic development. From China's point of view, I think this is very, very complicated. It's very difficult to deal with. Because on the one hand, in a sense, Russia's position, you could say, is weakened and they, the Russians are driven into their arms. And I gather over the weekend, a lot of despairing Russian conservatives were, you know, on social media saying this, you know, OK, folks, settle down. Our future is, as it were is as China's oil and gas supplier because no one else will have us. Like that's, that's, that's I mean, and imagine the, you know, the, the mind shift that that would require on the part of Russians, intellectuals. And then on, on, the, on the other hand, however, like is China, you know, has China attached itself to a rogue elephant here? I mean, is, as Matt Klein said in a show we did at the weekend, like is, is China really like a, sorry, is China attaching itself with Russia to like a mega North Korea? Um, which will be terrifying from their point of view, I think, because they can't really distance themselves from allies like that. They can't cut their ties to North Korea for all sorts of reasons. But on the other hand, it's it's clear that North Korea is a huge problem for China. Um, and I, Russia, you know, through this precipitate military, military action, through its inability to win it and conclude it quickly and wrap it up, and then through the escalation on Sunday into you know, this whole different realm in which China's not strong, right? I mean, China is not a bona fide global nuclear power. It has nuclear weapons, but that doesn't really make it a contender. They are beginning, I think, to think about that. But I think you can see the Beijing really trying to readjust and figure this out. There is an economic side to this where, indeed, if we go full on sanctions against energy, which hasn't happened yet, but were we to go there, then China will be the obvious conduit. India, too, is talking about, you know, opening up a rupee-denominated trading system because the Indians are a strategic partner of the Russians all the way back to the non-aligned days, mm. and they need the fertilizer um, for their agricultural system. So you will see those kind of 
those reconfigurations. But I think from a grand strategic point of view, this is a very mixed bag as far as China is concerned. And you could even see, you know, the option of some sort of China, Sino-American kind of alignment. And I think Washington clearly was. I think, you know, that New York Times report on Biden's efforts to enroll the Chinese in calming Putin was quite telling. Biden's administration has reached out to the Chinese to try and bring them into a relationship in managing the Russians. And the Chinese apparently turned the turned a cold shoulder on the Americans, and they may end up regretting that. Yeah. Uh, important for people to remember that most uh, kind of industrial fertilizer is made out of natural gas, which is uh, yeah. sort of, <laughs> one of yeah. why, why that's important uh, for, for India. Bruce, yeah. who's uh, one of our listeners, was thinking along your same lines, uh, saying China would like to supplant the U.S. as the world's dominant financial power, but China trades much more with the U.S. and Europe than it does with Russia, and was uh, thinking that maybe the West could put more pressure on Russia or beg more gently or something, whatever it is that might uh, get the job done there. Um, you know, in this in this moment, Adam, um, there's a lot of cheering for Ukraine, and mm. as we sort of see this kind of team Ukraine vibes, at least here in the U.S. and in Europe on on social media, you kind of take a grimmer perspective on what's happening. Um, you know, in your recent newsletter, you wrote, uh, it is to be feared that the almost carnivalesque sense of the war as a people's uprising against a clumsy, incompetent and oppressive enemy will give way to something much grimmer. And, mm. you know, we talked about gas being one of those hardwired things, but the Russian military is still likely to flatten Ukrainian defenses and systems, right? I mean, they're they're maybe slightly less likely than they seemed a week ago, but that's still kind of the core of this situation, no? I believe so. It, I mean, that's an uncertain wager at this point. Once upon a time, I would have said that with absolute certainty in light of what's happened Um I, I'm no longer quite so certain, but that seems to be the direction we're heading in the last 48 hours. But I think the broader point is a very important one before we come back to like the military details, which is that I think we need to be profoundly suspicious of this euphoria outside Ukraine about what's going on. I mean, they are, don't get me wrong, I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary what they're doing. It is a bona fide display of heroism, the likes of which we haven't seen in the West anyway. In, in in as long as I can remember, not in my lifetime, but the and they are playing an amazing social media game and all power to them. Like any any leverage they can get, the better. But I think we need to check our own reaction here, and especially as it were, the element of it which is guilt driven in the sense that what we're doing here is sort of retrospectively trying to salve our consciences because the reality of last week was that none of us believed that this would happen. Certainly, no policy was keyed to the possibility of this happening. Mm. No serious policy anyway. And the Biden administration was incredibly forthright about it. There was no American blood going to be shed in Ukraine. And that, that makes perfect sense to me. Makes, mm -hmm. But the consequence of that is Putin can take it if he's willing to pay the price. And that's how we structured this. And all of a sudden, what the Ukrainians have showed us is what being swept under the carpet looks like, what being swept under the carpet of history looks like if you are not just dust, if you are not just, you know, passive, mm. If these people are actually, quote unquote, like us, you know, like national people all over the world are like us, they actually care about their country and want to fight back. And many of them are incredibly brave, perhaps naive, but also incredibly brave. And I and I and I fear for the way in which our policy becomes complicit with and respond in part, therefore responsible for encouraging a form of opposition, which I think in the end, from this grim economic military analysis will be 
suicidal. Uh, and, and they will go down fighting, but they will go down. And, and we are headed down a Syrian route. And there's a specific reason for thinking about this. If you know European military history, or if you know military operations A, if you benchmark the Russian invasion against, say, the American invasion of Iraq, it's not actually going slowly. The way this works is you pound away in the frontier battles and then you break somewhere and then the big movements begin. Now, the other thing that's really worrying, in a sense, about this early situation, and it ought to worry us, is the Russians are not pounding. Russians, in, if, you, if you know Russian military history, this is a completely anomalous campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Russia's military, all the way back to the age of Napoleon, are known for their commitment to artillery firepower. This is how they win against Napoleon. This is the alpha and omega of the Red Army's war in World War II. This is how they won in Stalingrad, right? It is the people in the ruins and then the artillery batteries on the other side of the river that win the fight. So where are the Russian artillery? They are going to enter this story at some point, and when they do, they are the god of war. This is the destructive arm of the Red Army. I mean, it's and when you think about it and when you see the pictures in Syria, it's devastating what's going to happen, right? So, and it, it, will, it will involve the laying waste of these beautiful Ukrainian cities. So it is, it's, it's, it's incredibly uh, terrifying, I think. And then what? And, and, then, <laughs> right. and then, exactly, and then what, what possible peace negotiation is there? So the, 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 the other scenario to watch in military terms is what's happening in the east, because if you look at the maps, and the maps are contentious because, because they show huge areas, and in fact what the Russians are doing, as you'd expect from a modern army, is they're moving on the roads. And what they're fighting, I think, to do is to encircle the Ukrainian defenders on the eastern frontier. And, and part of that strategy is you don't progress too fast against them. You pound on them. You don't push them back. So is all the better to encircle them from the north and the south. Again, just, you know, this is like if you look at mm-hmm. if you look at any Red Army operation in World War Two, this is what it looks like. And it takes a while to develop. And there's clearly a show on the ground and the logistics are terrible and many of the Russian troops are unmotivated. But that's what we're seeing through TikTok. Mm-hmm. When you look at the overall picture here, unless Russia has completely lost its military mind, which is possible, but if it hasn't, that's what's unfolding. And that will also be, I think, the way potentially, and, and, and there's no reason to sound enthusiastic about, about it, but I think that might be Putin's way out. We talk a lot about off-ramps for Putin that I think because the original Russian demand was sovereignty for the entire Donbass, and what that means is the entire territory, also the Ukrainian-controlled territory of their mm-hmm. own territory, of course, in the east, if, if Russia can, as it were, establish military control of that zone, then Putin can declare victory. He doesn't actually then have to annihilate the cities. He can, he, he can declare victory for having established a grip on Donbass. Now, that, I think, maybe gets us to a ceasefire. It doesn't get us to mm-hmm. a peace. It doesn't get us to a reasonable settlement. It doesn't get us to justice for Ukraine. But it might get us to ceasefire. Yeah. Um, and, um, but that is a matter of weeks. If that doesn't happen by next week, that territorial campaign in the east where the arrows are actually moving on the map and they look like they're closing, then I think this just becomes an absolutely brutal siege war. Because the one thing we know is that Putin can't exit this without a victory. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, he exits this one way or the other, and the only way he exits this well is with something he can claim as a victory. Right. We're talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia. He's also the director of the European Institute and author of uh, two great books. He's been following this 
very closely. I wanted to uh, turn us to some of the global uh, implications of this on the energy sector. And Roger from Alameda is thinking some of those same things. Welcome to the show, Roger. Uh, hello there. Uh, I've, always, I've got basically two comments, and I, I promise I'll keep it brief. Uh, the first one is I have always felt that the dollar should be used. That that was our greatest weapon, the economy. It was the greatest weapon we had against Russia. Their economy, just compared to the United States, is about 17% of the United States. But we're, we as a nation are a Goliath compared to them. And when you add the European countries, we absolutely could obliterate them through what we are now doing. However, uh, I want to say I recognize there is pain involved this for everybody, but in lieu of war, as a substitute for a war, the economy and the dollar versus the ruble is not a bad way to go to war. There will be pain and suffering. That's that's a given, but it's not a bad way. Now, my second point is the one you just spoke to, and that is that um, we need we we desperately the bigger picture is we desperately need uh, humanity needs to get off the use of fossil fuels and every time people never look at this and and there's pain involved again there's no good answer here there's no painless answer but every time we use a gallon less of fossil fuel we we are helping prevent an even greater tragedy than what we are seeing in ukraine with russia attacking and that is global warming so the silver lining here, and again, I don't want to minimize the Ukrainian suffering, is that this should point us towards using more renewable fuels and less fossil fuels. Yeah. Because honestly, that is a much that is a bigger long term problem than what is happening in Ukraine. So let's use the dollar and economy as a weapon against the Russians. And if it's used correctly, this could be the downfall of Putin. If things get bad enough in Russia, believe me, he is not going to last forever as a ruler over there. And secondly, we need to get off these darn fossil fuels and we need to get into renewables. And this is probably one of the greatest encouragements we could have that we could also destroy Russia economically by using less of their product, which is gas and oil. Yeah. Thank you for those uh, comments, Roger. Um, You know, Adam, it feels to me like it kind of go either way, right? We could either harden a lot of the natural gas infrastructure flowing into Europe, build new, you know, liquefied natural gas ports and those kinds of things, or try to sort of off-ramp off fossil fuels, but it's going to take a while, right? So what's your read on how this, you know, really kind of shocking turn of events has affected our sort of medium-term approach to, to global warming? I, I, I take the point, if I might just respond to the very first point your caller made. I, I agree I agree with the sentiments of saying we would rather fight an economic war than a shooting war. But let's just remind ourselves of how consequential it is for us to be saying to ourselves, we're going to any kind of war with Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is like, I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I remember the yeah. 1980s and the 70s. And like, if you do, that should shake you to the marrow of your you know, bones. I mean, we have not been in a situation this dangerous since then. It, is, we, it should terrify us. Though I agree, it's far better than sending troops, which will be a total flat-out disaster. But yes, to your point, I think this is what I worry about is the, is the, is the transatlantic divide here. I fear that in the US, the way that this will play out is very much into the hands of the fracking lobby despite the fact that the ramifications for the US are really, frankly, rather trivial. I mean, it'll play through the oil price and people will get worked up about gas prices. 
but frankly, by comparison, by the pain that the West Europeans, let alone the folks in Ukraine are feeling, or anyone in the wider region there, it's trivial. But anyway, that's how it will play in the US, and it's a big deal. And we've already seen the Biden administration saying, we're not going to do anything that will affect the oil market. And, and that's, you know, only six or seven weeks ago, maybe three months, actually, the Biden administration was, you know, demanding that OPEC plus and the plus is Russia increase oil production. Mm-hmm. They must do that ahead of the midterms because we all know what the logic in the United States is. I think in Europe, it really is going to play out somewhat differently. Now, all of these are wages at this point. But the German government over the weekend brought forward its decarbonization target for its electricity system to 2030. Now, that's mm. eight years from now, fully decarbonized. Wow. In one of the most carboniferous electricity systems in Europe, in one of the big, you know, auto producing countries of the world. The Germans are addicted to fossil fuels, not quite Texas level, but they're seriously addicted. And they are determined at this point to break because it's win win, exactly as your caller said. There's just no downside here. And frankly, the way that technology is moving right now, the cost, we shouldn't exaggerate them. There's investment that needs to be made, but we're spending the money on ourselves. It goes around the economic circ- you know, circular flow. Those are fantastic new jobs in wind power and solar power in various types of energy reserve. Your point, though, Alex, about, as it were, are we building independences? We may have to build in some new ones. But it's a question, isn't it, of trading? I mean, I wrote to the essay last week saying I thought Nord Stream 2 will still come online. I'm not sure about that anymore. That may be $11 billion they've just poured into the Baltic. It's never coming back. But we might need to spend a few billion Well, it's a choice, right? Because Europe has LNG terminals, but they're all in the south. They're all in Spain and France. It doesn't have the pipelines to pipe the stuff to Germany because it needs to because it got it from Russia. So Germany needs either its own LNG terminals just to give it flexibility and access to the market or pipelines from from France and Spain. And then it needs reserves, right? Because when we move to the renewables, we know the fundamental problem is intermittency. I don't need to tell you that in California. We all know that this problem is there and we are going to have to buffer in intelligent ways. And if that's where we end up in 10 years time, you know, buffering intermittency in an overwhelmingly renewable system with a little bit of gas here and now, we should take that problem (laughs) any day of the week, right? You know, that's where we're at. Sign us up on the dotted line right now, and then we'll work on that gas bit, you know, but for heaven's sake. So, but that is the direction of travel in Europe. And I think they have the pieces there. Now, you know, it's easy to be over-optimistic and naive about Europe, but I think that might be the direction of travel. Certainly, if you follow the German government as the lead elephant, that's the way they're headed. Yeah. And that's also led to possible new compromises on extending the lifespan of German nuclear plants too, right? Well, Which was kind of uh, seemed like it was off the table. Yeah, it's a game. No, no, no. What played out there was really fascinating. So they've got this coalition of a right liberal, you know, free market Silicon Valley liberal on the one hand and a centrist environmentalist on the other. And they played this beautiful game with each other in which the finance minister, the, the Silicon Valley liberal, went into parliament and said, renewable energy is freedom energy, which is a concession from him. And the Green went on television and said, we'll have a conference about whether extending the life of the atomic <laughs> reactors makes any sense. This is what smart democratic politics looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking about the global economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Adam Tooze, one of my favorite professors of history at Columbia University, author of Crashed and Shutdown. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Pleasure. Yeah. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.